That is not proper podcast. Um, <laughs> you need to be hungry. Exactly. Like you can't have come in the past like two days before you podcast. Otherwise, you're you're a little bit too lax. You need to be hungry. Exactly. Otherwise, you're dehydrated. You know, you're de- you're a desiccated husk. You need to be wanting it. You need to be have okay. that vim and vigor. Okay. No. 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 Come on. Come on. Come on. This isn't come town. We need to. We're talking. We're, we're, talk- we're here to We're here to talk very seriously about the European left and Syriza. Welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga. Uh, this is a special patrons episode. We are here today to talk about uh, Greece and look at the recent elections there uh, in which Syriza were, were thrown out of office after four and a half years in government. And in particular to try to draw out some of the implications of this for the European left. Um, so to get things started, what happened in the recent Greek elections? I'm going to pass over to George to give us a little rundown in terms of turnout, voting, uh, who is forming a government, all the basics. Yeah, so thanks. Um, yeah, so the first election since September 2015, in 2015 there were there were two elections, one in, in January of that year, um, was held on the 7th of July 2019. Um, and basically the centre-right party, New Democracy, uh, won. They won an absolute majority in, in parliament. So they had 158 of the 300 seats in the Greek parliament. And I think the main thing that we'll probably be discussing um, today is Syriza. So Syriza got 86 seats. Um, PASOK 2.0, the Movement for Change, got 22. Communist Party 15. Greek Solution uh, got 10. And then Varoufakis' uh, party, uh, Mira 25, got 9. So in the Greek uh, electoral system you have to get three percent of the vote to get any seats in um in the parliament so i think it's another thing worth flagging just on on the outset is um the golden dawn the 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 fascists or the neo-fascists didn't make that three percent cut off so they lost all of their 18 seats um in parliament and then another thing and, and, which well and greek, is, greek solution are a far-right party and not a eurovision entrant as their name might suggest so is that is that what they sound like, Greek solution? I think it sounds. Like I mean, if be, yeah, if they're if they're the solution, then I don't know what the problem is. Um, but yeah, Greek, it's like business solutions. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, we can c- come back to c- critiquing their their name and all their politics later. Um, but yeah, the ab- abstention rate was was very high, so you only had a fifty eight percent turnout rate. I mean, this is actually um, wow. That's that's. That, I mean, do you have the numbers on um, previous turnouts? Yeah, I mean, I believe it was 44% in uh, September 2015. I mean, I got all this from um, from Wikipedia, which defines Greece as a, a 1978 American musical romantic comedy movie, dot, dot, dot. Um, no, it, oh, yeah, it, it's... Oh, it, Jesus it's, Christ. It's all there. It, it's, a, it's an important starting point to, to actually have some facts. I mean, some people believe in the concrete analysis of concrete situations, but, you know, each to their own, I guess. Um, but, yeah, just... Alex did ask me to do this as well. Um, for the first time since 2009, we've got a single party forming the government. And uh, back back in those um, halcyon days, it was PASOK, who, who whatever happened to them, uh, the Pan-Hellenic 
socialist movement. So I think the the sort just to, to round this up, um, you could say this uh, election end of the period of coalitions and the return of political stability. You might or might not agree with that, but I think it's a quite a um, the takeaway is low voting rates. Um, it wasn't so much a resounding victory for new democracy as um, a withering way of support for Syriza. Yeah, and it's it, it, it obviously is quite demoralizing. I mean, we've all, everyone across uh, the left in Europe and, and beyond, obviously paid a lot of close attention to what was happening with Syriza and in some senses was seen as the, the great hope, the linchpin of, of Europe, especially because it was the place in which the Eurozone crisis was the most acute and the the, the, the kind of Troika's response to it was the most aggressive, that it felt like this was a, a real linchpin. And instead, um, instead of the kind of, well, I mean, yeah, I guess it's, it's what you have as a sort of capitulation and this kind of, this is the, the sad ending of it. I think we can be quite explicit about the fact that series of being being eventually thrown out of government, but ending up in a situation where it is now the main center left party in a similar way to to the way PASOK yeah. was, yeah. is just yeah. the kind of, it, it's not even just outright destruction. It's just the, the banality of a return to, quote unquote, as, as George said, political stability. And political stability is built on the, the kind of depoliticization, demoralization. And, you know, that's that's shown in the low turnout rates. It's world. I mean, I'd say even go as far as to say it's world historic, um, because uh, it was Greece was on the front line of the um, the crushing intensity of the eurozone financial crisis over um, 2015 to 2016. Towards the end of the European crisis, but the most kind of crushing aspect of it was inflicted on Greece. The economy was pulverized, and we'll talk a bit more about the context. Um, but I think this is what made it world historic. At the same time, um, the almost complete elimination of the uh, hitherto incredibly um, powerful, um, domineering uh, Social Democratic Party, PASOK. Um, and it's not your, uh, you know, it wasn't your average Social Democratic Party. I mean, it had the, it had helped to modernize Greece, it had taken Greece into the European Union, it had um, it also had the prestige and the glamour associated with having been um, so brutally suppressed under the military dictatorship. It took Greece into democracy in the 1980s. So for all of these reasons, um, the fact that it was so, um, so uh, crushed electorally by dint of its capitulation to the European Union that it was replaced by Syriza on the left, really stoked hopes all around the world. So not just the severity of the financial crisis that put Greece at the forefront, but also the fact mm. that a social democratic party was um, wiped out by a party to its left, which was a coalition. Syriza was famously a coalition of all sorts of Trotskyists, uh, Maoists, Greens, um, left social democrats, all sorts of people flock to the Syriza banner. And so this was um, the origin of the term pacification, which was to describe the hope of radical leftists all over Europe that the social democratic parties who had become mainstays of um, of these kind of geopolitical political systems all over Europe, that they'd be wiped out as PASOK had been, pacification. It was particularly picked up by Navarra Media and pushed by um, by that crowd. And um, and Syriza has, has indeed replaced them, as Alex said. And so those two things, at the very least, I think, give a world historic character to um, the arc of Syriza's political trajectory, um, despite the fact that Greece is you know, a relatively small and now impoverished Balkan country 
which is more or less a debt colony of the European Union. Something as Varoufakis, the former finance minister, said, its its economy, its bank and finance sector are as controlled as Kosovo, which is um, you know a protectorate of the European Union. So yeah, I think that this, a, a great um, description of, of Greece, I think, was uh, done by Statis Kouvalakis, and this is all in the in the reading, uh, the readings in the show notes. If you guys want to check that out, um, where he describes Greece now as uh, a sort of a, 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 a economically a, a Bulgaria or Tunisia with a couple of beaches and ruins, um, but which is politically like a Kosovo, uh, a protectorate, um, which is yeah quite quite evocative, um, and it comes out also in a, in a context. I mean, if we remember before the Euro crisis. I, uh, a point that you know the 80s the 70s 80s 90s um especially were actually not such a such a a bad period in greece because there was an expansion of the welfare state um a certain expansion of the state in general and uh and and some you know kind of important reforms carried out by pasok then absolutely um, so it became a modern country i think i mean that's the thing it was still a um a fascist you know effectively a fascist or near fascist military dictatorship in the 70s and it became, um, PASOK helped to become a modern country. It helped to modernize and make it and it also entered into the Eurozone and into Europe. And this was seen to be a uh, vindication of their strategy, of their politics. But it also shows that um, voters in some ways have quite short memories or have uh, <clears throat> will step away from a party if it is fatally compromised. So PASOK, it, it is extremely striking out of the 10 million in the Greek electorate. There was 3 million of them were voting for PASOK in 2009. And then it's just, it's, it's just zero now. It's like under half a million. Um, it's, 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 yeah, it just shows that the um, electoral fortunes of a, of a party are not guaranteed just because it played at one point uh, an important role in a, in a country's no, um, very much so. political history. Not, and also not... the, um, you know, I'd also add to that though, because Syriza has also inserted itself into the power structures, the informal power structures of Greek society. So I think, I mean, my understanding is it's taken over a lot of the clientelistic networks through which PASOK used to rule, but has also managed to capture the support of the oligarchs that also used to support PASOK. And this was the famous case of um, Tsipras, the Syriza leader and ex-prime minister of Greece, who started um, holidaying with oligarchs, taking their helicopters, visiting them on their yachts and all the rest of that. He didn't. He wasn't involved with Jeffrey Epstein, was he? I just uh, just been been uh, reading some stuff about that recently, and it does seem well. Blair was involved allegedly. So was Clinton allegedly. I just wonder if he if Zipras had got to that that level of uh, kind of international ruling class or not. The I don't think have he their had. own oligarchs. I think. Okay, and their own islands of of various sorts. Sorry, okay. <laughs> interrupted with it. Go on. Uh, so let's let's actually, I guess, move to the the crux of this. Uh, at least, you know, not not the recent elections, but uh, the lead up to uh, the, the 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 historic referendum in June of 2015, uh, and the, the the fallout from that. Um, so so yeah, go for yeah. It. I I guess my my sort of take on this is that Syriza's been dead for a while. I don't know. One one question which I don't, which I haven't fully got my head around, is how Syriza managed to win an election in September 2015, right after going against this referendum result, um, and despite Cyprus's manifest untrustworthiness. I mean, it seemed like looking back to it now, uh, looking back on it now, that was the, the, the 
you know the beginning of the end for for um for Syriza, and they've been dead the whole time. I just have only just realised it. Yeah, I mean, you could argue, you know, th- those who try to still defend the series of project to a certain degree point out that they carried out some reforms here and there, which were important over their period in government, uh, despite the capitulation to to the EU. Um, and maybe I, I should cite something here, which which argues uh, exactly exactly this. I mean, so to take an article from uh, which was in in Jacobin. In, from July 2017. So this is after uh, the referendum, after Greece had decided to swallow the referendum, effectively capitulating uh, to the EU, despite 61% of, of Greeks having turned out to uh, to, to vote Ochi, to vote against accepting the, the, the memorandum. Um, that, uh, you know, so... so um, this is uh, Sam Gindin and Leo Panich writing in, in, uh, in Jacobin, saying that... Um, you know that this is that it, that some people are calling it a you know betrayal or capitulation, but you can only call it capitulation uh, if if you think that there was a viable alternative centered on immediate eurozone exit, that is Grexit. Um, and they argue that the political conditions that would have made an immediate Grexit viable are not present today. Today being July 2015. Those who insist that the, that these political conditions were established by the outcome of the referendum are being disingenuous, i.e. Series I had to accept in some way the memorandum and all that the all the confrontation between Varoufakis and the Eurogroup uh, during the crisis uh, was was you know basically just negotiation of trying to achieve a better deal, but that basically the the option of no deal, um, the option of of leaving the euro, uh, was just not a realistic one, and therefore all that came after of series of you know winning another election but you know sadly losing support and ending ending up with them uh you know falling mm-hmm. out of government now was somehow uh, a necessary trajectory and that th- despite that they managed to carry out some important reforms along the way in terms of whatever education tax um to make sure that uh people's homes could only be re- repossessed by 75% and not tw- and not 100% i.e. some some limited reform of softening Softening the blow of the deadly austerity that's uh, been imp- uh, that's been uh, applied it's to just Greece. A, I mean, it's yeah. such an outrageous, outrageous article. So self-defeating and so deluded. Um, not only, I mean, the fact that it's been disproven by the outcome of the election, um, because they say that the you know the the contempt which the the authors in the Jacobin article have for the Greek electorate, they say they'll turn out to vote to um, spare Greece the far right. Um, Golden Dawn has not even come into the um, come into the Greek Parliament. Right. So this is this is an, this is evoking a... the specter of fascism in order to terrify to terrify people, and it's just completely not even. They've not you know it, not only are they not going to form a government, they're not even managed. They've not even got into the Parliament. So this yeah. is th- and this is a, in an, in another article. So a recent one published at the beginning of this year by a number of authors, including Leo Panitch as well as Hilary Rainwright. Sorry, uh, I should have made Jody that clear. D- yeah. yeah, I was conflating but, the two. The but two, so yeah. so I mean, it, it, they're they're consistent at least. So I, I brought up these two articles just because I think they're exemplary of uh, two very well respected left intellectuals, um, and in fact more than more than just those two um, who. I think in, in terms of their theoretical and historical understanding, I have little to, to dispute with them. And yet their uh, their approach to this, you know, is 
problematic, I guess, um, because they so the the article which I cited just before was from July 2015 after the memorandum was accepted. This from the beginning of 2019, where they continue to argue that. Um, that, you know, they say, I'm going to quote again, there's no denying that the series of period has had its fair share of disappointing moments. As with those who recognized the failings of the Workers' Party in Brazil, yet turned back to it in the face of Bolsonaro, many people who are critical of Syriza government will end up voting for it. This is before this this recent election where Syriza was thrown out of office. So maybe they, they failed to foresee that Syriza would be thrown out. But, uh, but their basic conclusion is that, you know, in Greece, the result of this is much more likely to succeed in preventing the election of the reactionary right. Um, so again, it's it's kind of, we need to not have any political rupture, because that's politically impossible, socially impossible. Yeah. Yeah. We need to limit, have a left government in to limit the effects of austerity, and most importantly, to keep the reactionary right out. I mean, I, I mean, you know, I, that's, the I, recipe, I think, that's the recipe uh, for defeat. Yeah. And it's and it's more than that. It has its its own kind of excuse pre baked into it because it seems like this this sort of project, if you are um, judging success only in terms of of keeping out the far right, then basically all you do is you say, oh, the, you know, the far right is just around the corner. You know, fascism is is lurking everywhere in the in Britain, in Greece. You know, absolutely everywhere across the continent. And then all you have to do to make your program successful is to um, to one inflate this threat and then to not see it realized. I think there's no way in which you can describe the period um, in which Syriza were in government as anything other than an, an abject failure and a complete catastrophe for for the Greek economy and for Greek society. I mean, the Greek people. I mean, yeah, the Greek like people. They've pulverized the economy and they became the arm of the European Union, the local enforcers. Um, even diktat decided in Brussels. Even more, they've been so um, disciplined and so unwavering in their, as Theresa this is, in their implementation of of austerity. So the EU set out: you've got to have three point five percent primary balance surplus. So this is basically, you know, you, you're spending minus taxes, um, and so you've got to spend less than than your, your tax receipts. So, you know, Theresa exceeded that in in 2017. So you, so they put into place a more, um, a more radical austerity than even the EU required. I mean, there's no, there's absolutely no rationale for this. It didn't transform the Greek economy at all, um, and there's no, you know, what? How is that stopping the far right? I just don't, I just don't understand this, this, this logic because it, it is, is completely defeatist. It's important, I think, also to emphasise. Um, the far right point again, because um, Greece's depression was worse than the U.S. depression in the interwar period. Um, you know, I mean, it's difficult to understate the devastation that was wrought in Greek society. Um, you know, the exodus of people who fled, um, the way in which Greek the Greek economy was pulverized through taxes and austerity. Um, and not to mention the sheer demoralization of having hopes kind of raised so high and then brutally brought down by um, the betrayal yeah. of Syriza. So all of that. And still fascists didn't manage to take power, even in a small, less politically stable, less wealthy country that went through a catastrophe on that scale. The fascists were still unable to take power. And I think that is... 
um, a genuinely significant lesson yeah. um, which should be used against all those who can only make their arguments by threatening immediate um, immediate kind of uh, fascist takeover as a way to motivate their arguments and to motivate their politics. Yeah, I mean, we should be we should be clear here. Golden Dawn are genuine fascists. You know, not even neo-fascists. I mean, <laughs> there's no there's no joking around with them. The the um, Greek solution who have picked up it seems some of their votes, but still, I think did they manage to get into into uh, the Greek parliament? I think. Maybe barely. Yeah, they did. They did, but barely. barely. Right. You know, but even that, even I, that. I understand also. They're they're like more of a traditional kind of um, Greek nationalist kind of deeply reactionary Christian Orthodox party. Yeah. Um, so I mean, even they're. I mean, they're not. You know, they're not kind of the neo-pagan weirdo fascists that the Golden Dawn are. They're not yeah, the kind just, of para- paramilitary marching pagans. Comp- Exactly. Compare the uh, compare the names. One is Golden Dawn. It's rebirth. It's kind of yeah neo pagan. The other Greek solution, business suit and tie, boring. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> no joke, no. the politics are no joke. But let's the, not uh, let's not read off read off the politics from from the names because that's that's a, well, that's a I risky mean, endeavor. Up. Yeah, Pasok 2.0 of movement for change, which yeah. you know, if you've got change in your title, that you've got absolutely fucking no ideas. Uh, take for example, Change UK or whatever. <laughs> now, yeah. now change their name to. But um, no, but but the point Phil makes is right that, uh, and and it surprises me, in fact. You know, and it's a good surprise to discover that yeah, the fascists have not have not been able to grow during this period. And in fact, uh, the, even even if you were to combine the the scores of, of Golden Dawn and uh, Greek Solution, they've stalled. Now, with the with those who argue the case for uh, series of remaining in government at all costs, even if it men, means implementing austerity uh, because it means keeping out the far right, they that line of argument holds that New Democracy, the main center right party have moved rightwards. And so therefore, they have sucked up what would be a fascist constituency, they become more right wing. And in fact, you know, one can see not not to, to jump ahead too much, but one can see a similar sort of argument made uh, in the UK, for example, pointing out that the Tories now or the Brexit Party or whatever, are the new British Nationalist Party or whatever. I, I just don't think that that's, that's plausible as an argument, just because they're uh, of two different political types. And, and, you know, irrespective of that, the real disaster is a social disaster that's happened in Greece since the the crisis hit since 2010 and which has only continued and which has no foreseeable horizon you know on the future all that it, all that's happened under Syriza I guess you could argue is that that economic devastation has become normalized Greece has returned to like whatever one point something maybe two percent growth but the social devastation is is still there and you know all the young people have left the country it's a, it's a country now of of old people uh, struggling on pensions and the pensions are going to be cut further and you know it's it's a real social disaster so i don't think you can even you know make the argument that um that you know that softening that blow is a, a legitimate endeavor when there was the possibility of a radical change you know and I, I, and that's the i think that's the crucial point i guess the the argument Absolutely. would be things things haven't you know we haven't things haven't got any better in fact they've got a lot worse but at least you know things could be worse we could have fascism it could you know it could it could be raining so and that's and that's the dishonesty of the argument that the um that fascism can be used to justify the threat of fascism can be used to justify what happened in greece under syriza and that is you know I mean, the level of um 
the level of depravity in that argument really shouldn't be understated because it's been used to justify truly terrible things. When you say the lev- level of depravity, like how how would you how would you grade that out of out of ten, or is it a qualitative scale? Um, it's I more just, a qualitative scale, but I mean, I don't, you know, they they justify depraved. It's extraordinarily um, blinded and um, self defeating. And to justify, um, to kind of wave your hand over what happened in Greece and to say that there are gains and benefits here, it sounds to me much worse than the kind of straightforward brutality of the European Union technocrat who just says, look, Greece has to make these savings, um, austerity has to be inflicted, the Eurozone has to survive. That seems to me to be politically preferable, at least because it's honest, compared to the mendacity of saying that, oh, there's been some gains, fascism has been averted, Syriza made some good policies, blah, blah, blah. That just seems to me um, really repulsive. Well, some think... people are saying, unfortunately, this... Uh, sorry, Alex. No, go for it. No, some some people are making this, even today, are making this argument and they're carrying it over. Oh, such, from... as, such as the article that um, Alex mentioned mm. earlier, Jacobin yeah. um, New Democracy, published in Jacobin New Democracy Against Democracy, which was um, written by um, Leo Panic, Eddie Dean and some others um, before the most recent election in which Syriza lost office. I mean, the, the, I think it's also a form of analysis. I mean, this is a slight tangent, but the, a kind of you know balance sheet social democracy, <laughs> balance sheet socialism, I don't know, where uh, you, know, you weigh up the pros and the cons and you go and at any point in time you go right now this is what bad could have happened these are the good things that happened so you know on balance you know where do you stand um and it's a bit like with with people do it with the soviet union it's like well you know on the one hand uh the soviet union uh you know included women more uh people weren't starving people had homes and jobs people you know etc etc they they and and on the on the other side there was a lot of uh you know <laughs> a lot of bad stuff in the soviet union too Instead of actually no blue jeans, exactly no blue. Yeah, um, but instead of actually analyzing it historically, and here we're not talking about you know fifty years of a of, of a regime where you can where you you know where you're looking at the Soviet Union in the 1970s and going well, there's some advances there, you know, there, there's some backward steps, etc. This is we're talking about a, a question of you know four or five years here where there was a real possibility of a turning point so just examining series in you know early 2019 and going well there was some good there was some bad it's like no this is a, a complete social disaster in which they have managed to you know hold back some of the a couple of the nastiest bits and improve things here and there in the context of an overall uh declining income across the board and increasing inequality in that period and, uh, you know, a, a complete political demoralization. So it needs a historical analysis and not a balance sheet analysis. I think that's right. And it, mean, it also means kind of being um, brutally honest about the scale of the setback um, and being willing, like you say, um, being willing to acknowledge defeat. I think one of the most depressing lessons of this whole kind of era is um, showing that the left is still unwilling to be um, to be honest in its assessments of its own of its own um, politics and still willing to like you say take this kind of phony balance sheet approach on the one hand this on the one hand that um, which utterly obscures the reality of the situation which is that um, a moment in which um, I mean there's no 
there's no denying the fact that um, a Grexit from the Eurozone would have been um, genuinely traumatic for the Greek economy in a way that, um, say, Brexit wouldn't be for the British economy. It's on a qualitatively different scale, but yeah. still was the right thing to do compared to the pulverization that has happened to Greek, the Greek economy, and also that Greek Greece would enjoy self-determination, a substantive self-determination that would allow it to improve its economic prospects over the long run and more quickly than it's able to within the Eurozone. So, um, so I mean, anyway, this is, I mean, it's, it's a very, it's a very real um, issue for the European left at the moment. Is the question of how, you know, how uh, prepared are we to break with the status quo? I mean, do we have, right. do we have phrases, do phrases and and, it's and the words? political will is the or, political will there to break with the status quo and to bear the costs of breaking with it. Yeah, how can the... you how can you genuinely want political change unless you're willing to countenance political disruption? Yeah, so, if you're willing so... to rupture with the EU to go against it and to do the planning necessary, which would have been considerable in the Greek case, and it just the so popular going back to 2015, popular unity had some at, so, at some point had some despite all the weaknesses they had had some ideas in this in this in this direction Pop popular unity um, being the uh the, the the group the left platform of syriza which left syriza and stood on its own and actually achieved something like 0.3 percent in the in these elections so not a, a model yeah. of success no so they yeah they almost got to the three percent mark in 2015 um but yeah they just they, they they got wiped out in the most recent elections and i mean that that is um, a, a, a kind of an addition to to get additionally depressing. That's an, a that's a, a kind of side tale, because um, at, at one point it did seem like there there were some people who had a real will to plan what it would be like to have a a parallel cu currency for for a time, because this is what of course would be required or to go back from from the euro to the drachma. But it didn't it didn't work out like that. They weren't able to persuade people that this was in the interests of of the Greek economy and the Greek people. So before we before we broaden out um, to discuss some of the implications, because we're already kind of foreshadowing them, but uh, maybe it's worth you know referring back to, to to what actually happened in those decisive moments. And it's you know I, again, I, I would recommend listeners uh, read the uh, the interview with Statis Kovilakis, the the jointly authored article between Statis Kovilakis and and Kostas Lapavitsas, and including the other uh, readings that we've included there, because. He's very, especially Kuvilak, is very um, clear-sighted and, and honest in terms of um, being self-critical, both in terms of himself and also about what left platform could and should have done, perhaps in those decisive moments. Um, because we can't just, I think it's, I think it would be the wrong approach to be moralistic and say, "Ah, oh, well, Tsipras is a traitor and blah blah blah," and he betrayed us and whatever. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a, a very clear um, element of betrayal in terms of pivoting against the 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 61 percent who who voted uh, to not accept the uh, the memorandum. But um, I don't think that's it, the most um, the most objective approach, just to be kind of moralizing yeah. and, and finger wagging about it. So, you know, so yeah. if, let's, think, let's look at what, who who were the actors here and what could have been done differently what you know what were the, the key moments and, and actions that happened and and what within with, with a realistic analysis of, of what possibilities were i don't think it's just a, an, an academic discussion either i think it it really you know to get into this history and to get into the relationship between the the greek um state and the eu is to ask some very serious questions today or to to really think seriously about what would it be like to try to put into place a um, a socially, a, a, 
a transformative political project or an economically trans transformative project in the context of the EU. And I think the um, the, the the place not to start, perhaps, is Yanis um, uh, Varoufakis's uh, memoir, which um, I think some you can read it as uh, one of the most sort of self-deluded and, and tragic books that you're ever likely to come across, because you have this this person who's who's got all the rhetoric about how you need to go you know go against the eu and you can do all this stuff and you know everything's possible and i'm a rebel and i'm an outsider and then he just absolutely hits this brick wall and the realities um uh of 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 political power hit him and you think okay that must have been an extremely sobering um and probably quite depressing experience but at least from that you're going to learn the the realities of this of, of real politic but of course he goes the other direction and he doubles down on the reformability of the eu which um i, I mean i think is is quite staggering yeah i, I mean it, was gonna... well no no i mean I, gonna... I i i don't disagree with any of that but it's interesting that uh, even you know kuvilakis and uh, lapavita's members of the of the left platform and, and harsh critics are they they reserve their worst ire for Tsipras rather than for 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 um, Varoufakis. Varoufakis at least they I think understood that this was a moment for confrontation um, rather than rather than collapse. But it, but then there's that still that problem that if you're going to be serious about confrontation, you're going to need a plan B. You're going to need an actual exit strategy. Uh, I think it runs and, deeper though because so Varoufakis would say, well, I had an exit strategy. He had this, um, you know, he had this supposed kind of option to um, introduce a parallel currency using electronic parallel currency using um, people's bank accounts and tax credit paying system. I would apparently, um, you know, this would be the kind of fallback so that they had a plan B, which would allow them to exit the Eurozone. Um, so that would be Varoufakis's response. And um, I mean, I've had, you know, I've heard kind of criticisms of the of the kind of credibility of using Greece's credit tax credit system as a, as the basis for a virtual currency um, as a kind of phased withdrawal from the European Union. But I think it went deeper and it was political more than the kind of technicalities of the system in place, because I think Varoufakis' strategy was essentially still predicated on dissolving away Greek sovereignty into the eurozone. His notion was that I can try and convince the um, the rich northern countries that it's in their interest not to destroy the Greek economy and that um, we can resolve this crisis by moving towards a more unified Europe, a more economically integrated Europe, where the voters of the northern countries see that it's in their interest to support the eurozone and for some kind of reciprocity to emerge between the southern tier and the rich northern economies. So his strategy was based, predicated on the idea that there was no, um, he'd already surrendered the idea of self-rule, the viability and the desirability of self-rule in Greece. So his whole strategy was predicated on surrendering Greek sovereignty. And that, I think, was the his um, underlying political error, um, independently of um, how many kind of how detailed or um, credible or significant or how many plans he had in his back pocket as realistic kind of bargaining strategies when he went into the room with the Eurogroup. He was already, ultimately, there was no desire for Greece to rule itself. And this is why he sticks to his current strategy of remain in reform. He still thinks that the only way for 
um, modern liberal democracies in the West, in Western Europe, to survive is for them to integrate through the EU. Um, so he simply doesn't believe, I think, in the fundamentally, he doesn't believe in the possibility of popular self-rule and sovereignty within the nation state. And that's why he fails. Yeah, and I, I mean, you know, you'd, I think it's worth arguing that the the only way that that kind of a more positive form of integration uh, and, and internationalism that could emerge would be precisely through the exit of Greece. And if there were then solidarity movements which would emerge yeah. elsewhere, which showed a glimmer of it for, for a moment around 2015 and then, and then disappeared, um, you know, that's the only way that you could actually have Europeanism. So in fact, the, the only good European, the only way a good Europeanism could come about is precisely through unilateral exits, because that's the only way that, the, that there's a shock to the system, I think, that, that such a thing could emerge. The, the par- and it's the paradox that genuine internationalism now lies through, um, through, nas- through the nation state, through um, national politics, through pursuing strategies within particular countries. And that offers the opportunity for rebooting international cooperation in a way that's more democratically legitimate and on a more sustainable and viable basis, which is to say, with the political support of voters in the countries concerned, rather yeah. than done above their heads. I mean, this um, is this is. And that's, this is I think the... that's the par- that's the paradox. I think that Marxists have to sell um, to people in order to show that um, European supranationalism is unviable. Yeah, I mean, and that's and that is a re- that is the a, a challenge because it reverses the entire way of thinking about internationalism that's been dominant in the last twenty five years, which has essentially been that internationalism is above nationalism it's supranational and you just you just need to get out you need to release yourself from the the fetters of your nationalist uh, ideology and your you know your national flags and your support for your specific national football team um and then you just you just kind of internationalism well, or is, rather is what, or rather you keep you... your national football team but you surrender everything about national politics no so i mean you get fo- to keep now you get to keep the culture football's I mean, I problemat- so this is football's problematic uh, and not culture anyway some people might say <laughs> but yeah <laughs> No, but this comes, it comes back to our discussion with Quinn Slobodian some months back, where um, he mentioned the point about, you know, the kind of neoliberal vision of a constitution, economic constitution, is that you get your kind of, um, you get your cultural autonomy, you get like your, you know, you still get to talk in your own language, and you still get your kind of the accoutrements and the trappings of some kind of cultural autonomy. But the substance of political choice is restricted by the fact that you have um, economic decision making, which is restricted and curbed and limited and contained within very narrow parameters because it's all been decided at the supranational level exactly so and i think you this don't, is, you, you keep your you keep your football team it's important i think this is um, so this is this is the serious point that i was going to make is that we we because of this i think these modes of political thinking either reflect or or have been influenced by the fact that we see internationalism too often as a cultural phenomenon but it's not. I mean, the, the way that we're talking about it and the way that we mean it is it's a political one. And so it has to be grounded in democracy. And where does that start? It starts in the demos and it starts in the class struggle, which is always national and which is always grounded in the only context which in which workers have ever managed to um, express any self-rule, which is the, the nation state. So it is a it is a it is a paradox. And I think it's it's an important one for us to 
to to grapple with because if you just say you just cede your sovereignty of your of your nation as as Varoufakis might argue to a supranational institution which by the way is not democratic and is neoliberal then that's not a route to internationalism that's a route to just a hollowing out of whatever it is that is supposed to be communicating and and cooperating and and moving forward together which is the the nation that that is the starting point of internationalism uh, didn't execute would, that last bit very well but you know, no. you know what we're all we all agree here right <laughs> internationalism I would, I, would frame it, I would frame it slightly differently i don't internationalism it's, not so much, home. it's not so much the nationalism is positive so much as the fact that um anti you know the kind of um transnationalism it frames um frames the it's a critique of mass democracy it's a critique of representative politics, critique of mass politics, dressed up as a critique of national chauvinism. And I think that's the issue. So it's not so much that nationalism is positive, but rather that the and the politics of anti-nationalism or transnationalism or supranationalism or cosmopolitanism, however you want to frame it, those are um, critiques of democracy and representative democracy and mass politics, which take the form of a critique of national chauvinism. And this is why the left falls into the trap consistently. Um, it's terror of what is, you know, I mean, left genuinely terrified of mass politics. Um, and you see it, I mean, it, the liberal left is in particular, um, that any form of mass politics is, um, and this is knobs, again, neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, any form of mass politics must be fascist, totalitarian. Um, nationalist politics is terrible. Um, but really, it's a critique of democracy per se. Um, so it, it, so, it's in, so let me let me just bring something up. Let me very, just bring something up. Put, you yeah. should you should you should uh, write something on this cosmopolitan <laughs> dystopia. Like, you, oh, really? know, you can have that. You can have that phrase for free if you want. Well, uh, thanks, man. I appreciate so, that. So to play slightly devil's advocate, or at least to bring up a point which um, which bears thinking about, both uh, Kuvalakis and uh, uh, Lapavitsas make the point that. Uh, since, uh, since, since. Sorry, Le- I just want to check: is that the pr- Brazilian pronunciation, or the Greek pronunciation, or the Italian pronunciation of their names? I, I, I think doing it in a Brazilian way gets me closer to the Greek than anything in English. <laughs> so I'll go with that. Okay. Uh, can you put, can you put it with a bit uh, heavier accent, whatever you're doing, because you're, you know, you're halfway there. But I think you could really land there. <laughs> well, I, I wasn't, I wasn't, I, I actually wasn't trying anything. But you know, Kuvilakis uh, and Lapavitsas. I mean, that's me trying to do Greek. Yeah, I don't know if that's exactly, is that. That's anyway, what I, that's exactly what I heard when I went to Greece on holiday last year. Excellent. Yeah, that's great. I, anyway, uh, it's all, it is all Greek to me. They, uh, they point out about the the radical left. Especially, I think some bits of um, of the, the the left platforms uh, inheritor organization that in, in during the series this period they they've kind of tried to make some overtures to I guess like patriotic nationalist politics, um, even appearing on some far right channels and stuff like that, uh, which led them nowhere and was demoralizing and lost them a lot of left wing voters, which is interesting because I think we can obviously imagine certain correlates in in Britain, for example, um, that. The rat, you know, my position would certainly be that the radical left has to lead the the, the argument for popular sovereignty and can't uh, fold itself into a, an argument for national sovereignty in itself and and to play that purely nationalist card without the emphasis on 
democracy, or the emphasis being on democracy as opposed to purely national sovereignty. Um, but I don't think, so this is the hard thing though, I don't think that um, popular sovereignty requires external sovereignty. Um, it requires the form of the of national independence. Fine, fine, fine. But to we clarify. have to. But, no, I, I, I'm, I'm fine with that. My, the point more is just about what is the the leading point of that, and not to. And I, I think it, it can be seen very clearly with uh, some left wingers who support the Brexit party, um, where that is a fold. You know, you lose the argument and you lose the case about the complete democratic restructuring of the polity if you collapse your radical left argument into a nationalist one no i agree with that and i mean and i think that's the way it's it again like it's a it's a it's a slippery and a difficult argument to make in the context of um the political cut and thrust of the public sphere particularly with all the kind of mania that surrounds brexit but the um the way the european union works isn't so much that it curbs external sovereignty um national sovereignty though i mean it does that too particularly in places like greece after it became a kind of a debt colony. But with countries like Britain, France, Germany, um, Italy to a lesser extent, it's not so much that it curbs external sovereignty, so much that it hollows out the internal processes through which popular power is generated, so that it subverts popular sovereignty. And that has ramifications for how the nation integrates and relates to other countries. But the main, I mean, the main threat of the European Union isn't to national independence, but to popular sovereignty. And I think that's, I mean, I obviously agree. Um, but it's a very, very difficult argument to draw out, particularly because I think so, um, popular sovereignty requires, obviously, um, external sovereignty and national independence. And that's, it's always, um, it's always a two-dimensional debate at the very least. Yeah, but one thing it doesn't require, and we can be quite straightforward about this, it doesn't require patriotism. It doesn't require, you don't have to, support the england football team it's not about it doesn't have any of these kind of you do don't you george you do don't you do i yeah of course i do yeah you do don't you i i i have my garrison not to mention like not to mention alex supporting brazil like to the bitter end like yeah it's not like a mega imperialist country so it's you know it's easier but no that's so completely untrue, it's, man. It's only, like, it's, what about it's, Haiti? It's sub-imperialist. It's sub I said it's not mega-imperialist, oh which is God. a scientific term. <laughs> it's striving to be like, so. Haiti, no. Haiti is Brazil's Iraq. Order and, order and progress. The, um, no, <laughs> patriotism is not required here. I think this is what we need to keep yeah, our, that's our right. eyes on. Is, 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 it is, it's about a political process and the, the cultural aspects and while not completely unimportant as a secondary and it's about where is where is political accountability where can you change things what are the rules that you that you make as a political community and where does where does the source of that power come from and if it's leading anywhere than through mass participation in politics which is what popular sovereignty is then that's uh that's an anti-democratic that's an anti-socialist institution yeah absolutely the european union and i think i think quince Bodian's book is very good on on some of the contradictions and some of the the processes which lead in a variety of different ways to to organizations such as the european union coming to represent some of these um kind of anti-patriotic globalist ideas very good um, let's zoom out for just this last Very good, part. Thank then. you. Yeah. Uh, and discuss, I guess, the implications for the left. I think we can already see the, and, and we could, we could, we could have already have seen, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, the impact of Syriza's capitulation 
on Podemos, for example, in Spain. Um, yeah, no, in, in Portugal, the case is a little bit different, uh, where the radical left has, uh, you know, joined up with the Social Democratic Party. But, you know, in, the, in those in, in the cases of Spain and Portugal, uh, you've got cases where the Social Democratic Party has come back with a force, not in any kind of great social sense in terms of there being mass uh, social movements or anything behind the, the Social Democratic Party, but just that there's enough of a enough of a party machine there, uh, which has led it, you know, to, to, to survive again. And that's what's happened with PSOE in, in Spain. Uh, it's happened in Portugal, too. And in Greece, the it's not hap- it's not followed exactly the same uh, the same script. But what's happened is that Syriza has replaced uh, PASOK, as we discussed at the beginning of this episode. And it's done so in a way in which it's actually much weaker than PASOK was at the time because it doesn't have the whole party machine that PASOK did. Um, so, you know, in, in, in Greece, you actually kind of have the, the worst of both worlds. But I guess w- the, the two things. One, I guess the question is, what impact has this had uh, on the rest of Europe, especially in the European periphery, where, you know, as we, as we already mentioned, everybody was looking to Greece? And secondly, um, what does this mean for left populism? Has it reached its end? I mean, we, we discussed this a little bit, I think, in, in our uh, the Bunga Live we did back in March, um, where uh, Katarina Principi in particular was was arguing this point um, from the position of, of the left bloc, kind of observing the rest of the European periphery. And it does seem to be a little bit of a, of a, of a sad end. I mean, it does seem to be a little bit, you know, can't speak too soon, maybe something emerges, but I think the demoralization emerging from the 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 the, the crushed hopes from both Syriza, where the, the the possibilities were perhaps greatest, as well as with Podemos um, in Spain, and I guess in some ways uh, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party seems to have been reaching an end. So those two questions, crushed yeah, hopes. I think that's abs- that, that's absolutely right. People are still talking about left populism. I mean, I think that's right. So people are still talking about it. Magazines, op-eds, articles, academic scholarship, um, but it's over. Um, I think, I mean, that's the point of Syriza shows it contain it's the um, it illustrates the defeat of left populism across Europe, not only um, not only with Syriza, but also, like you mentioned, with Podemos, which is out of the you know, um, essentially gone. Um, and uh, also with Jeremy Corbyn's um, with the Labour Party's collapse into remain and reform. So that's the real kind of. Um, the tragedy of everything that's happened is that um, whereas a few years ago, pasification, pasokification, the elimination of the um, old kind of centrist social democratic parties was what um, the radical left in Europe was looking forward to. And now very soon, you know, within a few years, it's already certification, which is to say that the radical insurgencies from the left have been contained, deflected, blunted, curbed or um, have just turned inwards and simply kind of taken taken their seat at the table. Um, and so yeah. certification, I think, is the future, basically, of the insurgent left as we see it. The yeah. only people that are standing now is, um, the only people that are standing are the left of the Democratic Party, is the only thing that's left of left populism on the global stage. So Bernie Sanders, obviously, perhaps Elizabeth Warren, um, no. and that's it. And so we'll see what happens. We'll see. Yeah, what I mean, happens. because maybe, maybe Mélenchon, maybe Mélenchon. I think François Soumise, You know, they're still obviously perplexed and haven't been able to incorporate the the the, the spirit and energy of uh, of the gilets jaunes the there. Gilets but I think jaunes. that's that's still yeah, there's still absolutely. maybe a question. There's still a question mark I think over that's France. Uh, but in the other ones, I, I mean, I think it's it's obviously sad. I say this with no you know 
with with no sense of and vindication. And, and also, Five Star has been outmaneuvered by yeah. um, by the league in Italy. So I mean, everywhere it's um, you know, Syriza Syriza's trajectory describes the kind of the brief kind of um, the brief kind of um, flash in the sky that was left populism, but it's essentially over. The only thing that remains now is. Um, Sanderism, or whatever you want to call it, in the US. That's and, okay, I mean, I would make an I argument. Think, I think, I think, some people um, get quite down on this. They have their their sad boy voice when they're talking about this, and they're kind of um, they they talk about crushed hopes and 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 collected tears. But I mean, actually, to take a step back, it's you know, it, in some ways, it's the first real rebirth of some kind of leftist politics after the the end of the end of history, and it's it it is a quite an inc- an inchoate and and heterogeneous group of these left populist um, groups okay, that we've just but... been dis- discussing, and you know, and actually, it hasn't really grasped the nettle of how to reincorporate mass politics, and for that reason, it, in the European context, hasn't really worked out how to to avoid the rock of the EU, and so I think it, you know, so it, I, it, there's, yeah. there's 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 more to come. Listeners who are feeling all, all sad about no, this, no, no, no. so that that's it's, important, you know, I think. Yeah, more is, to come. But, from, but it goes uh, to show the EU, left. the EU is the rock on which they all crash, right? I mean, and that, I think that's really uh, important. Yeah, but and yeah, but why, okay. Which is why, well, let me finish. So, I mean, and it's why I think American politics is slightly different because it doesn't have, it doesn't face the kind of external constraints that um, left politics does, or any politics, in fact, does. In the European context, but beyond that, I think okay. So I mean, the where I would disagree with you, George, is only I think that um, the Panic route in that piece, New Democracy Against Democracy, this um, the pro Syriza piece that they wrote um, in Jacobin, where they try to they try to um, make a make a virtue of necessity, and they also try to dress up defeat as victories. If the left does that, then there is nothing to be gained from the experience of left populism. And I think that's, you know, I don't see any evidence that there is any kind of brutal honesty or um, ruthless ruthless criticism, as Marx put it. There is no, no evidence of that. And as long as there isn't that, then there'll be nothing gained from the defeats of left populism at all. I agree. I mean, there's. I would add a couple of other points. I mean, one just on the question of the EU. I, I don't think. I mean, certainly this is my position that all uh, left politics in Europe has to be first and foremost against the EU, and that has to be because at, at, that it varies very much by country. There still is a greater degree of support for the EU. I think the argument has to be made against. Uh, the EU and against supranationalism, but that doesn't mean that politics has to be uh, that, that that a radical left politics has to be entirely directed towards that, because I think the conditions have to emerge for that confrontation to take place. That confrontation was set up in Greece, and uh, Syriza flunked it, um, and flunked it in such a in, in such a way as. Uh, to lead to, in some ways, the worst of both worlds, that you still have the economic devastation uh, that even, you know, Grexit would have led to, but you also have the political demoralization that has happened now with Greece, where you have a return to, quote-unquote, political stability and a, and a political duopoly of Syria's and new democracy. Uh, and and that's, that's the worst of both worlds, I think, it's important to say, because Grexit would have been 
very severe and it would have been in also a social disaster but it would have pos opened up a new possibility and it wouldn't have led i don't think to the degree of political uh, de well de political demoralization depoliticization that this Syriza experience has led to um but more than i mean but i think i mean just to be clear i don't uh, we shouldn't get stuck on the cleft stick of saying that um um, you know, sovereignty and in national independence is something which is valuable independently of whatever the economic costs are. Um, I think the point is Grexit would have been economically costly, but that the medium to long term ben economic benefits of withdrawing from the Eurozone, regaining the shock absorber of a floating national currency right. and having control over your spending, over your taxes um, and being able to adapt your economy outside of um, the completely dysfunctional European Union. Those would have been, it's the overlap of political self-rule and um, economic flexibility that is necessary for, you know, running a modern country. No, sure, sure, sure. I mean, Greece, look, the, the EU would have, well, could, I, could very well, could very well also have continued to squeeze Greece in many other ways, uh, even outside of the Eurozone and, you know, eventually out of, outside of the EU. That shouldn't be underestimated. But, you know, as you say, it does offer you the, the kind of sovereign mechanisms to at least create some possibility of a, of a, of a future, uh, which Greece currently does not have uh, the, just my point about um having those moments of confrontation versus where those places where that isn't uh that that question hasn't been put right so there is no question of spanish exit at the moment right or or, it, or in italy perhaps that moment might yet come um in the uk that moment came in in a completely accidental way as we've discussed a number of times on this podcast and that's what makes the situation in the UK so uh, so disappointing, where you've got the actual opportunity, which comes up out, completely out of the blue, to have a confrontation with the EU and leave it. And also to make much more of a success of that leaving, of, of that, you know, uh, of, uh, of, of having an independent economy than the Greeks would have had. Right. The, for the Greeks, it would have been yeah, devastating I mean, for, you know, for, in, in Britain, I think it would have been uh, they could have made a hash of it. Um, you know, well, we I still think don't so. I mean, the difference, the differences in Bre with Brexit, it's um, it's more um, more narrowly a case. I mean, not not, you know, not entirely, but it's more a case of logistic, you know, the shocks, the economic shocks of logistical reorganization, whereas Greece is. Um, Integration with the European economy by virtue of sharing the common currency is obviously much more intimate and therefore the separation would be more costly. And also, you know, I mean, it would require kind of um, ruthless reorganizing of Greek politics, say, um, expropriating the church, selling off the islands, um, slashing defense spending, which is high in Greece. All of these things would have been, I think, um, necessary parts of Grexit and also but also, you know, I mean, not things that would necessarily have been, um, you know, that would have also had their own political upshots for Greece. Um, but the upshot of all, I think the other aspect of all of these things is that I wouldn't underestimate how much skepticism there is bottom up from for the European Union. So all of the, I mean, what the polls suggest, the most recent ones that I saw suggest is that while people are afraid of um, the costs of leaving the European Union because they see how difficult and tortuous Brexit is, um, and these are polls from all over Europe. At the same time, none of them are optimistic. The majority are not optimistic about the future of the European Union. And that's the bind of European politics. People don't see a future in the European Union and they don't see a way to exit. Yeah, well put. And that's it's the like failure there's, there's... because the left don't offer the way out. And that's the failure of the left. It's like th there is no alternative. But Yeah, well, exactly, but, but... right? 
Uh, let, let me see if I can work this out. There is no alternative, but to do anything else is worse. <laughs> so oh, nice. That's good. No, I like that. That's right. I mean, that's, that's the le- that is the left's position, right? There is no alternative, but actually doing anything is worse. And the left has recreated Tina. So there is no alternative as Tina, and the left has recreated it. Well, I mean, I don't want to put that... T- you know, too too strong, and the case differs in in different places. And I, I think part of the problem is that there still is no social movement. I mean, you know, we, we're talking about political decisions and and whatnot, but it's still in very much a, of a void where there isn't uh, a return to labor militancy. There isn't a mass social movement. There's a couple of exceptions, and you know, one can point to certain glimmers, the the movement of the squares and whatever, which led to the formation of Podemos, led to to Syriza, oh, the and, Gilets Jaunes, and and then the Gilets Jaunes, which is a different case. I just think. I just so, think that the movement of the squares sounds like, uh, you know, a load of nerds with their pocket protectors kind of going out and, oh, and demanding political oh, change. And I've never thought of that before. Well, you, you've just you've just situated George. yourself as the leader of precisely that movement. So congratulations <laughs> yeah. on your victory. Why, why not? Yeah, well done. You know, is it, is, sorry, it's not cool to read a book. Oh, whatever. To do a podcast. Um, no, those, I think no. Those, the, your, the movement of the squares... The protests in Tagma Square in Greece—they've all been—they were absorbed into left populism, right? And, and then, so and then they're disappointed with, with left. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly, exactly. And so, I guess just the point being that, you know, we can make these intellectual points, but it also means that you know, we the the right political moves will not conjure uh, up a people out of the thin air, right? Um, so it's not just oh, if, sure. if you make if you wave a banner against the EU, suddenly the people will come and then there'll be this confrontation oh, no, and so of course, on. Of course um, so I think, we I mean, don't want to be glib about and so, that. No, of course not. And um, and I think a lot of it less, you know, it must rest on demonstrating the political will for disrupting the status quo, the political will to disrupt the status quo, and uh, a political vision for what you wish to do with um, with greater political autonomy. Um, when you're free of the restrictions that the European Union imposes. Um, I mean, I hear lots of, you know, I hear lots of root stories, anecdotal evidence about um, anti-EU banners and slogans and chants and what have you around the Gilets Jaunes protest. Um, so, I mean, you know, I wouldn't underest- perhaps underestimate the capacity for um, anti-EU sentiment to bubble up from below. Um, I guess we'll see. Yeah, no, that's right. I, I just, I, to, to, I guess one, one final point that I wanted to make is just the degree to which we seem to live in an age still of, of muddling through it and, and indecisiveness. And that's from nearly all sides. Yeah, absolutely. So when the left has an, an, an option to do something drastic, as with, uh, as, as with the, the Greek uh, Ohi vote and, and the possibility of Grexit, they turn away from that. In the UK as well, uh, a, a Jeremy Corbyn, a Eurosceptic presiding over Labour Party, uh, whose members are are largely in favour of remaining, uh, is unable to make the decisive act, and which would be a, a brave one, which would be a very difficult one, but the necessary one, and is unable to do that. And this, but this goes for uh, more traditional kind of neoliberal left, you know, centre left governments and parties, as well as for the the, the traditional centre right, as well as even for a lot of the populist right when they actually get come into government, uh, for all of their um, for all of their you know big talk and uh, and and kind of xenophobic politics and whatever, they end up doing actually very little that's decisive, other than just 
perhaps you know just being nastier to refugee refugees and, and and immigrants and just leading to a, a general crudification further crudification of politics but there's no real actor out there who's able to act decisively partly because many of these parties have weak social bases mm. so you're basically saying they're a load of proof rocks they're just scared to scared to act and just measuring out their political lives with with coffee spoons and what we need is some some vital you know somebody gets get shit done some kind of <laughs> not yeah <laughs> no, no, that not... sounds where are you going with that no we need, we need a bit no we need a bit of leninism that's actually true um yeah that's... no i mean no the, but, it, but it's right i think and the, the the inability to foresee political rupture um is is what i think weighs on everyone's mind you know there's just a kind of almost but not the inability to see it, the inability to will it. I think. I mean, well, nobody, even, you know, nobody even sees. They it because see it, but they're terrified of it. May, yeah, maybe. But I think there's, a, there's. An, a, I think even Kuvalakis makes this point in the article that there's an epistemological problem of not being able to see a Greece outside the euro to take the to take the yes, example that we've been right. talking about. Yeah. And so you kind of envisage that it's just a complete void. It's a black it. hole. Uh, it's and, political vision, though. I mean, I don't know. Epistemological is a very kind of. Um, it's a very kind of George way to frame it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a term that's used. It's a term it's that's used in the article. Vision. I wouldn't have chosen that. No, but, I know, yeah. I know, I know. But I mean, it's. I mean, I think it perhaps also speaks to part of the problem. The five dollar um, word, which is the I mean, the tendency of the left to frame everything in these absurdly inflated intellectual terms. No, it's a enough. matter of political vision, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I just, you know, I understand what it means, but it's, it's a political vision. And you would have and it would also require ruthless honesty, you know, because they would have had to sell to the Greek people, you know, blood, sweat and tears is the only way we're going to get through this. And they're unwilling to instead they promise them kind of fantasies of uh, European renewal on the press, you know, on the part of Arafakis. Or if we stay in, we'll still stay a European country and we'll still have the cover of European institutions, blah, blah, blah. You know, the kind of the um, the lies sold by Syriza and Varoufakis. Yep, I think that's right. I think, and, and I mean, I guess just to put a final point on this, this uh, sort of age of indeterminacy and, and indecisiveness, I think is a product precisely of one of social disorganization uh, that you can't, it's very hard to rally people and sell a, a vision of something when very often, you know, the people aren't there. They're not. In, they're not filling the squares. There are some protests here. There are some strikes here, but but it's still um, it's still qu- quite low level. And also uh, a situation that uh, that we we've, we've forgotten what real rupture looks like. And this is the the point that we always make about about knobs about neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, about that you have uh, you know an increasingly turbulent situation but one where the there hasn't really been any significant political ruptures we don't live in a time of the the destruction and the creation of new nation states for example and mm. things like this so we just don't have the, the the experience none of us do of what that kind of dislocation and formation and reformation of uh, of political uh, units actually looks like and and so we can't envisage it and it's very difficult to make that break then Agree. Yeah, I agree. Okay, speaking of, of, <laughs> of, of speaking of making a break, should we <laughs> should we should we make a break now? Political some political disruption, Alex. Is that yeah. what you're promising right now? Um, uh, we need see. a Phil exit and a Alex. Well, hang on, hang on, Alex. Alex, the name's already there. It's you know, it's much easier. To, it's a much yeah, easier sell. It's a much easier sell. That was really. Why could I not think? That. A lack of political imagination. I can't <laughs> exactly. imagine how to finish Alex with an IT on the end. 
All right. Thank you for joining us, listeners, and uh, and very kind patrons. Uh, we will see you next time. Uh, we actually have a, a another episode coming out shortly after this one where we talk to Adam Proctor of Dead Pundit Society, also about uh, the limits of political possibilities today and uh, being realistic. So catch you then. Thanks for tuning in. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Girlfriend in a coma, I know, I know, it's serious. Girlfriend in a coma, I know, I know, it's really serious.